last month as I preached to you, I had the honor to preach about the foundational and fundamental truth that every human being on the planet, every person ever conceived, is created in God's image. Now, an image, like a statue, is meant to call your mind to the glories of that person. Like a beautiful portrait of that person, you go, oh, yes, I know that. Well, God created humanity in his image that we would reflect his glory all over the planet. That is God's purpose and his intention. The implications of the truth of that are many, and we discuss those, some of those, in that sermon. Today we're going to look at that very same passage in Genesis chapter 1 to look at another aspect of God's creation of humanity. He has made them male and female. Much can be said at this point of the utter lostness and confusion of our culture in this matter. Everyone is exhorted to make their own reality, and we start by declaring good evil and evil good. We're recreating civilization to the glory of our own image instead of the image of God. It's gotten so bad that in some communities, marriage is not merely between two people, but some communities are saying that groups can have a civil union. It's not just a live and let live culture. We each are being squeezed to accept and applaud these things as normal, healthy, and good. And the title, the title wave has hit us so fast as Christians, so unexpected, that it has left us reeling. How, how do I answer this? I mean, we've untethered ourselves from reality. How can this be? We are ill-equipped to answer questions that for a thousand years have not been asked. Many churches in America have begun to even question what God says in his word about man and woman and marriage. There are some churches in our country and in our culture who have rejected God's word altogether. So it is critical for us in this day and age that we know that God has good purpose and good intention in creating man, male, and female. And the only place we're going to find this bedrock anchor point is in the Word of God. So let's us ask God's blessing on us as we go here this morning. Father, your Word is truth. It conforms with reality. You tell us the way things are. We beg that we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would bow our faces before you, that we would hear your word, that you would be glorified in your church today, that we would glory in your creation of us as men and women. Guard us even this day in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. And read what God says, starting in verse 26. 
God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There are a couple of sermons packed into the idea of dominion. We're not even going to go there today. We're just going to look at male and female. That God is glorified in making us man and woman. All of this points to God's glory. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, the cherubim call out, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. For God's glory. Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7, echo the same truth. Everyone who is called by my name whom I created, why? For my glory, whom I formed and made. All of this points to God's glory. It is God's decision to create male and female. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, we see the act of creation. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature the word man there is actually adam adam it means red it's the same nickname that esau gets edom later on in scripture he is ultimately the color of dirt he is ruddy god formed man god formed man first And then, in the passage that Sarah read, we see that God formed woman. Took a rib from Adam, put Adam to sleep, and formed the woman, and brought the woman to the man. And Adam calls her Isha. Isha. Throughout the Old Testament, the the word Ish is used for man. You have Adam and you have Ish. Men are Ish. Uh, But the Hebrew for woman is Isha. I mean, it even sounds romantic in there. But God specifically created woman. Both of these, chapter 1, verse 27 tells us, are image bearers. But Jesus echoes the truth of man and woman in creation when he is talking to the Pharisees about marriage. In Matthew 19, verse 4, Jesus thumps them on the forehead and says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? David kicks it up a notch. In Psalm 139 that I read at the start, specifying that God formed my inward parts. 
God formed you as he saw fit, in the womb as he intended you to be. It is inescapable from God's word that it is his intention to create us, specifically man and woman. Now, this is done for a distinct purpose. Now, the equality of man and woman echoes throughout Scripture. We see that over and over again. We are kin to no other creature. I'm not a giraffe. I'm not a zebra. It's silly to even imagine that, but some of the silliness with regard to our gender echoes essentially that same silliness. We see that there is a unity before man and woman before the throne of God. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is no male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. Okay? Your significance before Christ does not matter if you're a man or you're a woman. Peter, when he speaks of the husband and wife in chapter 3, verse 7, refers to us as co-heirs. We are co-heirs with Christ. But yes, okay, there is this inherent equality, but there are essential differences between man and woman. Man is not woman, and woman is not man, and that is down to every cell in our being. Every cell in your body has 23 chromosomes, and one of those is specifically XX for the women or XY. It is written in every cell of your body. Archaeologists, even today, are doing studies on bones they're picking up. Teeth, they will, they will take a tooth, scrape the proteins from the tooth, and they can determine if it's male or female from the proteins that they scrape off of the tooth. Every cell in your body, even down to the proteins, declares you to be man or woman. This distinction between man and woman is seen most evidentially in procreation. No man can bear a child. Every person on this planet has been born of a woman. No man will ever do this. He cannot. The media will hype men being pregnant, but each pregnant soul was conceived and born a woman, and every cell in her body still testifies that she is a woman. Despite extensive medical gymnastics, a man cannot nurse a child. He doesn't have the hormonal cocktail required to do that. He doesn't have the machinery to do that. And a woman cannot bear a child apart from the provision of the man. Until the modern era, it was the union of man and woman. This is God's good intention. The physical differences in appearance distinguishing man and woman point to this fundamental end and purpose. God made this procreative vehicle good and well-pleasing to him. And he also made it good and well-pleasing to the man and the woman. God, therefore, intends this procreative process to continue to fill the earth and multiply more than once. Yes, more than once. 
this union between a husband and wife creates a one fleshedness just spoken of in Genesis, a unity between the man and the woman. But every union between a husband and wife has the potential between man and woman, male and female, has the potential for a baby. And that is why if we untether that physical relationship from marriage between a man and a woman, we end up with all kinds of problems. Among unmarried women, 41 abortions occur to every live birth. 41 abortions to every 100 live births, excuse me. Single-parent homes. Uh, One in four children today are growing up in single-parent homes. Why? Largely because of the destructiveness of untethering the union between a man and woman from marriage. But even the curses in Genesis 3 point to male and female distinctions. God said in Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because... You have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Even within the curse, the idea of childbearing is brought forth to Eve. Even the idea of the man's physicality and his labors against the earth are brought forth against Adam. But the physical differences between man and woman are beyond the procreative. As a golfer, pro golfers can drive a ball 300 yards. Men, women, on the average, 250 yards. Now, if you look at the shot put, shot put's a little closer. A man can put the shot 23.37 meters. A woman can put a shot 22.63 meters. Except that a male shot put is 16 pounds and a female shot put is 8 pounds. There's a significant difference between the strength of a man and a woman. So great is the difference between men and women in sports. Serena Williams said at the height of her abilities in the middle 2000s when Andy Murray was on the the men's side of championships, Serena said, actually it's funny because Andy Murray, he's been joking about myself and him playing a match. I'm like, Andy, seriously, are you kidding me? For me, men's tennis and women's tennis are completely almost two separate sports. If I were to play Andy Murray, I would lose 6-0, 6-0 in 5 to 6 minutes, maybe 10. No, it's true. It's a completely different sport. The men are a lot faster. They serve harder. They hit harder. It is just a different game. 
We see this also inside in the physiological and chemical differences between a man and a woman. A woman's body is created to nurture. The hypothalamus secretes oxytocin. It sedates and creates a nurturing behavior. The energy to burn fat is more readily available in a woman than in a man. A woman has more white blood cells for fighting an infection. A woman's body is created to nurture. A man's body is created for combat. His hypothalamus secretes testosterone, making him aggressive and hungry for sexuality. Every muscle in his body is created for energy. More red blood cells, more clotting capability. His lungs are bigger, his muscles, his heart, his bones are bigger. This is why it's no surprise that during adolescence, you see when the male hits puberty, he is launching essentially a physical insurrection. Whereas a young lady, when she hits puberty in the teen years, it becomes emotional chaos because men and women are different. This is borne out in the Federal Bureau of Prisons. In the prison system today, 93.2% of the people imprisoned are men. 6.8% are women. But not only are we physically different, we are mentally different. This came out just this last week. The International Federation of Chess has banned transgender women, men, from playing in women's tournaments. Why? Because they crush them. You go, why? Because men and women think differently. The best chess players in the world are men. That's not a sexist thing. It's because men think differently positionally and strategically than a woman thinks. So this, this essentially pagan chess federation recognizes this and go, it's not fair. So the women will play against women. So what then, what place do our complaints have against these truths? They're useless. Why? Because this is how God has ordained it to be. If you are a man, this is who and what God created you to be. If you are a woman, that is who and what God created you to be. And all of this is for God's glory. David calls out, I am fearfully and wonderfully made as a man, as a woman. I can rejoice that I am a man. You can rejoice that you are a woman. And it's, it's important that we immerse ourselves in this truth of God's word. My being a man or your being a woman is at God's hand and by his design. And therefore, a man ought to live out his masculinity in a manner that brings glory to God. And a woman should exude her femininity in a manner that brings glory to God. And men and women in their differences should work together in the church, in the home, in the world, exalting their differences 
and their likeness in humanity for God's glory. I've, I've put uh, both in the bulletin and on the notes a link to a book by John Piper that I think is exceptional where he goes into what is the difference. That's the title of the book, What's the Difference, about man and woman out in a secular world. What are the differences and how is God glorified in that? I encourage you uh, to, to, it's a short book, good, good book. But there are seven questions I want to look at here that we are going to confront and face in the world today as we live out these truths. And one thing I want us to really be sensitive to is there are a lot of broken people out there. They don't understand. And we don't sit there looking down our noses at people who are struggling with these questions. We have the truth in God's word to apply to them. And at the same point, we are empathetic because as Paul tells the Corinthian church, as such were some of you. So let's take a look at seven questions. The first question is, what if I'm broken? Maybe I really should be a woman. Now we know that man is born physically and spiritually broken. I read in Psalm 139, 16 that our days are numbered. We have a death sentence on us already. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says life and death are in God's hands. But God has also a hand in the malformities of the fallen world. Exodus 4, verse 11 says that very thing, that blindness and deafness are by God's hand, but even they are for his glory. And you might go, well, people are born deaf, people are born blind. Well, maybe I'm born in the wrong body. But we see even in the healings of Jesus Christ, when Jesus healed an ear, he restored it to its original and proper function. I may be broken spiritually, but my body is my body. God does not change when he heals an ear to become a mouth. He does not make a lame person's leg to become ears for them. I cannot change my structure to something that it is not. Those who try to do these things with surgery ultimately mutilate the human body. And they take something that was properly functioning and ultimately sterilize it. But people will struggle with who they are and God's word that we were created fearfully and wonderfully made, that we were created male and female, is what they need to hear. Second question, what do I do? What do I do about these real desires that I have? What if I have real desires that are contrary to what God's word says? Well, first of all, my having a desire does not make the desire right. I may have adulterous desire, desires. I may have desires for rage. 
I may have desires to steal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Jeremy already preached and taught on this. Verse 1, Paul writes, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Christ died for these sins. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 tells us that he died once for all for the perfection of mankind. But later on in that same chapter, Paul says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So this sin with which I am battling, this desire I have, ultimately, what do I do with that? I mean, what am I going to do with that? These desires, Paul tells us in Romans 1, are against nature. And we see that. There's nothing procreative in those desires. They are against God's design for how he made me. Paul calls us, God calls us, to battle the wicked desires of our heart. In Romans chapter 8, verse 13, he tells us to put to death the sin with which we battle. We are called at times to flee. In 2 Timothy 2.22, we are to flee our youthful lusts. Paul calls the church at Colossae to put off the old and to put on the new. To put off the sin that so easily entangles us, the writer of Hebrews tells us. And we are called not to indulge our passions. I can't. I can't give in to what Christ died for. So... Can my desires change? Perhaps not. What must I do? I must repent. Even of my desire. Well, it's a desire. Well, it's a wrong desire. And so even of that, I repent. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, and to plead with him to change my desires. I beg for relief, knowing that God will provide a way of escape against the temptations that I face. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Jesus calls us to not indulge ourselves, but to deny ourselves. Take up our cross daily and follow him in Luke 9, 23. Can desires change? I would say yes, for some they can Rosaria Butterfield, her history, her life in lesbianism and coming out of that and now being married and a mom is a great testimony of that. And then there's Sam Albury. Wrote a fantastic little pamphlet, uh, Is God Anti-Gay? Sam Albury is a godly man who speaks the truth about homosexual desires. It is a wrong 
desire. And it's a desire he still struggles with. He has no desire to have a wife. And so he continues to battle with that. Might you struggle with that your whole life? Perhaps. And one day we will be free from that. Third question. What if it's my kid? What if it's my child? A lot of Christian parents will absolutely compromise what God's word says when it's their kid. But if my child said, hey, mom, dad, I'm going to start doing heroin. The parent's not going to go, oh, that's great. That's wonderful. We're going to go, no. Why? Because it's destructive. That can kill you. It is not for your good. So if my child is still at home, I'm the parent. Be the parent. This is where the word of God needs to come into the life of my kid. Is it going to change them? That's not my job. I can't change my kid. That's God's work. But God calls me to parent. Hey, mom, dad, I want to become a thief. No, not in our home. You can't. You can't do that. Such would dishonor God, and I take him to his word. God has created you not to steal, but to sacrifice. So I would pray with my child. I would continue to train them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord and continue to speak the truth in love that sin is sin and inappropriate desires and improper desires are what they are. And I can't indulge in them. And perhaps counsel may be fitting for such a one. What if your child's away from home? Pray. And pray some more. That God would bring the word of truth into their life. But I cannot affirm or applaud same-sex attraction or gender confusion. Because neither is in conformity with words God, God's word. And neither is inviting human flourishing. Question four, what if you're invited to a wedding? My counsel would be don't go. Marriage is ordained of God in Genesis chapter one. Jesus Christ says the same thing in Matthew chapter nine, verses three through six. The Pharisees came up to, to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered what I read earlier. Have you not read that he created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That is marriage. Anything else is not marriage. I cannot exalt and rejoice in something that is going to bring harm to my child. It's unloving. You might go, well, it's, you're, you're being unloving not doing that. It's unloving to exult in that. If my child is going to divorce his spouse and he's having a party for that, hey, mom and dad, come to my divorce party. I'm going to go, that's tragic. I can't do that. 
this will not lead to good and the flourishing that God intends. Well, some may say, well, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. I go, that's true. But he did not exult in their sin. He did not praise them for their sin and go, hey, that's great. Go and sin no more. Question five, what about pronouns? Don't. Don't engage in fictional pronouns. Again, this violates reality. Well, you, you go, well, it's just like a name. It's just a name. And, and trust me, in the, in the military, I hear all kinds of weird names. Uh, and I will call you whatever you would like to be called. You know, that, is, that is a personal preference. You know, a guy may be called Sue because his dad nicknamed him Superman and cut it short to Sue. And go, yeah, I'm, I'm known, known by Sue. It sounds a little weird, but I'm known by Sue. I go, okay, I'll call you Sue. I can do that. I don't have a problem with that. You can call me scum. But pronouns aren't like a name. Pronouns identify the reality of he and she. Pronouns are not a preference. Other languages, you know, Spanish and French, and I speak neither, but both have nouns that are gender specific. Mi hermano is my male friend. Mi hermana is my female friend. Well, somebody's going to turn and say, well, you're imposing your religion on me by not using my pronoun. And you have to ask the question, why must I bring my conviction into conformity with your conviction, but you won't conform with mine? Well, I'm not even asking you to conform with mine, but you're asking me to conform with yours. I go, why? In this violation of language, we are seeing reality being violated, God's reality of male and female. Never before in human experience has a culture mandated that you must affirm a physical man as a woman or something else altogether. I haven't even gone into other pronouns, but... Now, here's the problem with the pronoun thing. The way it's looking... It may cost you your job. You go, okay, well, where are you going to stand, saint? And I would exhort you to stand on 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God... One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly, getting fired. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, saint, you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. 
He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus Christ made the promise in Mark chapter 9 verses 29 to 30. That whatever you lose for his sake in this world will be regained a thousandfold in the life to come. Might you lose your job? You might. Are you willing to stand for the reality that God made? Question six. What if a couple comes into our church? I would hope that we would welcome them as we would any strangers that came into our church. I mean, I would hope that lost souls come into our church. And if they are lost, if they do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're just trying to go, what, what do we say here? What are these Christians going to do about us? Then praise God that they are in a place where they are going to hear the truth of the living God. Do we get them straight before we get them saved? No. I can't expect an unsaved person to act saved. God saves us and then changes us. We are in Christ as a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. As I mentioned earlier, such were some of you. But if they're professing saints, but unashamed in their sin, we share with them the truth of what God's word says and what our convictions are from God's word. And go... You cannot have a place in our church willfully living in sin. None can. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in its entirety. To affirm them in fellowship is to ignore willful sin. And the most loving thing a saint can do often is to confront the sin in a brother. They may never have been confronted before. Question seven. Should I try to change somebody? You'll hear conversion therapy spoken of with evil eyes and the like. Do you try and convert them, change them? I go back to what I started earlier. You can't. You can't change them. Only God can change them. But God made us male and female, and what he did was good. God created man for woman and woman for man. And that is good. Anything else is not good. My heart should be to see them come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That has to happen first. That they would come to know Christ as Savior. And that is where I will share with the person the reason for the hope that is within me. Mm. 
then and only then can they start living sanctified lives. Understand this too. I mean, we may see those things because they're obvious often, but they may be battling bigger, darker, worse sins in their life than those. And so might we. So what do I do with somebody I know? I pray and I love them and I continue to speak the truth with them as I have opportunity and I remain ready to give a reason for the hope that is in me. God made us male and female for each other. As we leave here this morning, don't be shaken by the insanity of the world that is out there. Let us hold fast to the truth of God's word for us as an anchor in this storm. That he has created each one in his image for his glory, male and female. You and me. Let's pray. Father God, I beg that you would give me grace, that you would give us grace. As you have lavished your grace upon us, that we would lavish your grace on the lost. Oh God, as we get pressed in hard from the outside to compromise what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, help us to stand on the truth and the goodness of your word, of your purpose and your intention. Father, I beg also that you would give us courage to speak when we do need to speak. Help us to be gracious in our words and loving. Father, perhaps even to win some to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Would you use us as you see fit? going forward. In Jesus' name, amen.